This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Dalencia. In the past 10 years, the investigative agency Forensic Architecture has been involved in numerous inquiries into incidents such as human rights abuses, police violence, unlawful killings, or environmental disasters. The work brings together contributions from a wide range of specialists, including architects, forensic journalists, filmmakers, and artists. The agency's work has been presented in courts, in news media, as well as in art and cultural spaces. It has given rise to new scholarship and the nature of evidence and its role in legal processes, and it has also tested its principles and practice. Investigative Aesthetics, Conflicts and Commons in the Politics of Truth, a new book by Matthew Fuller and A.L. Wiseman, reflects on some of the critical developments that the practice of forensic architecture has given rise to. It's an account of the possibilities of an investigative commons of distributed agents to participate in a counter-investigative movement that holds power to account on its own terms. I spoke with the book's authors, A.L. Wiseman, who founded Forensic Architecture, and Matthew Fuller, who is Professor of Cultural Studies at Goldsmiths, University of London, and he's also a member of the Forensic Architecture Advisory Board. Here are excerpts from a conversation. Matthew, let's start with you. Before I ask Gail to give us some details about the uh, work of forensic architecture that I just alluded to in the introduction, it would be good to have a sense of your role in this project and your research that's brought you to this collaboration. One of the areas I work in is a field called software studies, and this is a kind of overlap between computer science, broadly speaking, and cultural theory, so a more kind of uh, philosophical uh, approach to computing that draws on uh, political philosophy, aesthetic philosophy, uh, to think about the, the structure of meaning and the, the forms of uh, the forms of power in contemporary software. Uh, so that work has been going on for probably a couple of decades, a bit more, and has taken on different projects ranging from 
technical analyses of things like search engines. So using using different techniques to probe the inner workings of large scale uh, large scale platforms, or um, more kind of critical writing. So an an attempt part of software studies an attempt to think about ways in which we can understand software as part of contemporary culture and how it inflects uh inflects politics our cultural interactions um thinking about the way in which software produces uh the stuff of contemporary culture in the present so whether that's something quite banal like a word processor or something that uh, is ostensibly more sophisticated like a like a search engine or a social media platform um the work involves using programmatic tools that is technical forms of analysis and uh, conceptual forms of analysis so a lot of that crosses over with uh, the investigative mode well we certainly pick up on some of these connections later on in our conversation but as we get started Ayal, this particular book, Investigative Aesthetics, isn't precisely a biography of forensic architecture, the organization that you had, but I think it would be great for those of our listeners who are not yet familiar with your work, um, for you to set the scene and to describe the kind of investigations that you have engaged in on the past decade. My name is Ayal Weizmann. I am uh, the director of Forensic Architecture, which is a research agency based here at Goldsmiths. If you come here, you'll see a big open space studio that feels something between a newsroom and an artist studio. Um, it's about 20 or 30 of us. Uh, and we're working on counter-forensic cases. That is to say, we are working on cases um, against police forces, militaries, secret services. Uh, we're developing new evidentiary tools and techniques uh, that are admissible to courts, but at the same time also presented in other fora, uh, such as uh, in art and cultural ones, uh, in the media, in truth commissions, in citizen tribunals, and generally um, with social movements. Um, we are best known, I guess, for open source investigative techniques. Uh, so I started in the anti-colonial movement in Palestine. I'm Israeli, I'm Jewish, uh, but part of a growing um, cohort of Palestinian international and Israeli activists that reject colonialism and apartheid as the reality in which we live and try to fight it in different ways. Um, and one of the ways uh, that we do that is by actually documenting doggedly the realities of the occupation. And as an architect, I started documenting the architectural violence the way in which crimes were committed on drawing boards of architects, the way they were building roads and bridges and buildings on, in colonies that, you know, sort of bisect Palestinian uh, built fabric, etc. So initially forensic architecture was imagined as the description of an architectural object that is in itself violence, right? The kind of the violence enacted through architecture. So architectural tools describing architectural facts. And I guess we fell upon in the second decade of our new millennium uh, on another sort of use and technique because, you know, towards the end of the noughties, the, um, 
you know, cartography, drawing, mapping, completely transformed with the emergence or with the combination of Google Earth on the one hand and social media and user-generated material on the other. At the intersection of which, um, to describe physical facts required photographic attention and photographic knowledge. So our, our kind of techniques turned into a kind of a combination of photographic and architectural intelligence, if you like. And very soon we realized that the only way in which we could inhabit and navigate the stream, the endless stream of images that we drowned within today, many of them coming from conflict zones, almost all of them produced by participants in the events, mainly witnesses and people that experience violence firsthand, but also perpetrators, militaries release their own visual information. The only way to make sense of it is to build it into 3D architectural models that function as anything between a database and a kind of an arena that synthesizes an enormous amount of visual material. So we fell upon that. And, and what it meant to us is that architecture stopped being the object of analysis, but a method of seeing, a way of seeing. Um, through architecture, or architecture was our optics through which we could actually describe events as they are taking place. And although it came as a, as a in relative surprise, as I said, we fell upon that kind of technique, very soon after we've developed it, we realized it became very uh, useful and it caught up really fast. So uh, you have multiple kind of major news you know, organization like New York Times and Washington Post now adopting the kind of techniques and technologies we develop, uh, all human rights organizations. And, and now um, through my advisory role in the International Criminal Court, you know, we it, it becomes sort of like uh, we're working on the admissibility on, on different kind of categories like uh, provenance and chain of custody and verification. Can I ask you to give an example from one of the investigations that you have carried out to give listeners an idea of the kind of processes, actors, politics, and sources that are involved in carrying out any of these projects? Yeah, he, here is one example. And, and, and let me start from a place I, you know, to the kind of the conflict I feel closest to. Uh, in 2014, uh, Rafa, which is the southernmost city in the Gaza Strip, were under huge, ruthless Israeli bombardment. The reason was that Palestinians managed to capture an Israeli soldier or an officer into a tunnel. And there was a kind of punishing violence that happened during that time. Um, Amnesty was unable to enter into the Gaza Strip. And they asked us to reconstruct 24 hours a few months later, they asked us to reconstruct 24 hours of that conflict, the day that was the most violent within it, August 1st, 2014. Um, so we hoovered in from the internet um, about, I would say, 7,000 visual material. You know, some, some of them were photographed, most of them were videos on different channels, um, Arabic language you know, so YouTube channels and Facebook accounts and Twitter, etc. And some of them were sent to us. Some of them were journalistic sources. Um, and we were trying to make sense of what do we do with all those images of destruction and how you actually 
build a timeline. So, you know, the first question that you have when you when you confront with uh, a clip from a war zone or from a site of police murder or from, you know, anywhere that you investigate is where was it taken and when? So the where is solvable because, you know, in every video you have all sorts of landmarks. Uh, maybe in Gaza you'd have minarets that you can navigate by and you say, okay, here is a cone of vision and here is where it starts. And it's, it's complicated, but you can do that. The when is a bit more complicated when you don't have metadata and obviously all those platforms strip the metadata off um, the visual material they send for a very good reason. It actually protects the people um, that, that send this material. But... Um, Trying to figure out how to build a timeline is um, trying to determine what image comes first. You know, you need to tell a story. The story is never existing in one image or one video alone. It always slips between, between images. It's what happened between the frames that is interesting for us. So how to, how to do that? Sometimes we actually look at the shadows and turn the city or turn architectures like a sundial. We simulate the sun and we see, ah, you know, within five minutes, we can pretty much determine it. Uh, sometimes we cannot do that. The shadow is nowhere visible or the image is not in high enough resolution. What we've done in Gaza is to look at the, at the sky. It took us about half a year to realize we were looking at the wrong side of the image. And every video of the bombardments of Gaza had a little bit of sky in it, or at least sometimes half a sky, half the image was a sky. And the sky always had bomb plumes. And the bomb plumes are unique signatures because each one is uh, a unique kind of product of the size of the bomb and the surface in which it encounters. And it's the, the time of its own evolution, right? A, a bomb plume lasts for about 10 minutes in the air. Um, so we created a kind of cloud atlas of all cloud forms uh, on the sky over Gaza. We're just looking at the sky and managed to sync up uh, a kind of a time-space map of cloud formation, uh, a kind of like a equivalent of the 19th century cloud atlas, if you like. Um, and then we turned our attention to the ground. And, you know, the, the sky was simply a kind of a big sort of physical clock for us that allowed us to turn the attention to the ground. And then we could, but then we could see what's the relation between that video of a tongue charging through the city, uh, those civilians running with white flags, uh, this ambulance caught in a, in a fire, in a, in, in a shooting, um, you know, a sound of a, of a drone or of a plane overhead. And by actually building it up into a space-time map, you can, all those disparate videos, each one representing one single element of a conflict, all of a sudden um, come together to tell a, a, a more major one. And then we realized also we can look at agricultural sensors uh, because where the tanks went during that day, uh, the plants underneath them stopped photosynthesizing. Uh, so, um, you know, agricultural sensors on satellite give you a good indication of, you know, the sort of the robustness of, of vegetation activity. So, you know, repurposing something like that gives you this, the, the entire footprint of the tank maneuver. And now you cross-reference it with testimonies, with the videos, with the audio, 
um, with what we knew about where the Israelis thought the tunnels were. And we a very disturbing story came about where we exposed a secret Israeli command called the Hannibal Directive, which actually calls uh, or, or give commanders on the ground um, or the, its understanding within the Israeli army is that they are expected to kill a soldier that is taken captive rather than uh, letting him or her fall into enemy's hand because they don't want to bargain later for their release. And that what we were seeing there was effectively an assassination attempt of the army against one of their own. Uh, we released that. Um, it was sent also to the ICC, to the International Criminal Court. It's one of the cases now that they are um, investigating Israel for violation of the laws of war. Uh, but it was also shown, we didn't want it only to be presented within sort of judicial framework because we wanted to people to understand what it means. And um, for that reason, you know, I've written about it, uh, placing it within a history uh, on the role of the captive within the, that particular conflict. Uh, we exhibit it in, in order for people to see our techniques, to learn from them. Uh, we don't keep anything proprietorial um, in, in, in what we do. And um, we discuss the sort of the, the politics of the law, if you like. So, you know, in a way, different fora allows you different forms of reflection, different level of reflection on the kind of investigations that you undertake. Yeah, for me, the idea of using a cloud atlas as this kind of investigative tool is still quite mind-blowing. And I'm going to put a link to this particular investigation on the Forensic Architecture website in the episode notes. Well, you've mentioned a number of actors involved in an investigation like this. So on the one side, we have the state, we have Amnesty International, we have activists supplying footage and pieces of evidence. But on the other, you have the outputs. And you mentioned the courts, which are, of course, incredibly important in the investigative practice. But you also allude to cultural institutions. Um, and it's it's important to know that forensic architecture has been exhibited in numerous shows and museums and galleries worldwide. It's been shown in Documenta. It's been nominated for the Turner Prize. So I wonder if you could speak about the role of those kind of fora in disseminating the evidence and your findings. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the uh, the task of counter-forensics is very different than that of forensics. Uh, forensics in the, in the hand of the state, that kind of confluence of uh, science and policing that emerged in the sort of early 19th century Europe uh, in relation also to the colonial uh, projects. Uh, and that is because in counter-forensics you simply don't have access to the scene of the crime. And you sometimes don't have access to the forums that are in charge of uh, arbitrating justice. Um, you know, very often uh, it is, imagine, you know, imagine a street corner, uh, the police murders somebody, um, they put a cordon around it, they control the narrative, uh, the cordon of areas, a state of ex space of exception. It's only state agents that can go in. Um, we need something to 
leak out of it. We need somebody to upload something. We need to we need we need to start with some weak signal that comes from the cordoned off area. Then you know because it is um, a state crime, some states um, do not really or do any any kind of anything in their capacity to stop you actually entering into court or when you're in court for your kind of material to be admitted. And we experienced that when when working for the family of Mark Duggan here in uh, exposing the police cover up and and the, the lies around. Uh, the reason uh, that the police said he was shot and and the very you know showing very clearly he didn't hold a gun in his hand. Uh, sometimes it's more overt. Like in Israel, they 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 would say you know we're anyway anti-Israeli activists so, or worse. You know we've experienced even worse abuse uh, in terms of the reason for why we work against Israel, and which I don't want to dignify here. Um, so sometimes you want to find an alternative forum. Um, and I don't say that the, the gallery is equivalent to the court. They do different jobs. Both of them are institutions. Every institution limits what could be said and heard within it. Um, both have some degree of openness and, and some degrees of restriction. Uh, who can speak, what can be said, etc. Et Even when we could bring something to court, we would want to, and we always contract our, our work with our, you know, the people that ask us to do work in that way, we'd always say that we reserve the right to take a piece of evidence that has been presented in legal fora and, and, and do something else with it. We don't want it to only be limited to sort of as, as a technical service to the judicial system. We wanted to do political work. We believe that evidence is only as good as the political process that can use it. And therefore, um, we, you know, we would sit with the people we work with and we'll build a strategy that would say, okay, we'll, 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 we'll have it, obviously, the court always have to come first because they don't like contaminated or dirty evidence, as um, Matt and I have written. Uh, and then we'll take it to the art space when we will do other work with it. When we'll speak about representation, we'll speak about media, we'll speak about the political context, we'll maybe even speak theoretically about aesthetics uh, with a nudge to our, uh, to, to, to our book. And sometimes we realize that, hey, the art world itself can be complicit in the very human rights violation we are presenting. So, you know, no forum is ever neutral. No institution in our society is um, you know is a kind of a, a perfect arena to present material in. What you do is you offset the limitation of one by taking your evidence uh, from the, the court to the media to the art space, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to academic environments also. I think I'm interested in hearing from you as a cultural theorist about the relationship of these kind of spaces. Yeah, I think I mean to, to kind of follow on from what El said. I think. Uh, if we think of galleries uh, or courts as kind of media systems, if we think of them as, as ways of mediating and translating uh, 
requirements or demands for access to facts or access to the truth uh, or access to experience, access to knowledge, access to forms of perception, uh, they each have their own particular characteristics. So a court will operate in certain ways according to the codes, conventions, the theatre that it works with. And the gallery works uh, in another kind of way that it kind of... uh, People behave in in both cases. People behave in different ways. Uh, in a gallery, you slow down your movement. You attend to the detail. You you look at the very specific kinds of objects that are brought together there in certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of ways with certain kind of attention to detail. In a court, uh, the kind of theatre and rhetoric of the place is is again very different with different kinds of statements allowed, different regimes of enunciation that are, uh, are made available and that are, that are become the stereotypes and cliches of the courts. And also certain kinds of acts of power are possible in both, uh, in both regimes uh, or in both media spaces differently. So we, we see them uh, both as useful, but both having their own tendencies to certain kind of inhibition and certain kind of uh, prohibition on statement, uh, which are relatively self-evident. Where it's possible, though, is to think, what do they make it possible to state and what kinds of tension can they bring to bear on a political problem? So without uh, any illusion that they're uh, neutral spaces or that they're ideal in any way, uh, we can also say that, given their specificity, what is it possible to do in these in these spaces within these uh, within these particular kind of historically accrued opportunities? Obviously, there's much that should be contested about these kind of institutions, but they can also be um, grounds for certain kind of articulation and reinvention of what's possible, and trying to rework them. Uh, is also part of the part of the work. So Eyal talked about changing the, the the context of the institution in some ways or pushing its parameters, um, partly by stepping outside of it and producing other centers of gravity. It's useful to look at uh, a tradition of work in uh, in arts practice that has always seen the gallery as one form of articulation of art or of cultural practice, but that it also circulates in other spaces, in the streets, in performance, in people's daily lives. Uh, and you can see the kind of the, the development of different historical movements around their articulation of the, the interaction of different kinds of space and the different kinds of affordances that these spaces and mediatic systems uh, allow for. So that's, that's, how we, uh, that's how we see these these multiple systems that articulate different kinds of possibility. Well, one recent example of this kind of interweaving of possibilities of different fora is um, the investigation by forensic architecture into the killing of Mark Duggan. This is the tragic 2011 event, which essentially led to the sparkling of um, riots in London and across the UK. And this is a project that has accompanied a legal process, multiple state investigations into the incident. I'm going to drop here a couple of clips from the video that was recently shown at the Institute of Contemporary Art in London. 
that accompanied the release of an extensive report into the incident produced by Forensic Architecture. And as before, the links to the full video and the description of both the work and the full report are available in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On the 4th of August... 2011, in Tottenham, North London, Mark Duggan was shot dead by police after the minicab he was travelling in was pulled over. Duggan was being monitored by Operation Trident, a controversial police unit focused on gun crime in London's black communities. Duggan stepped out of the cab and an officer known only as V53 shot twice, killing Mark Duggan. V53 later told investigators that he saw Duggan holding the gun in his right hand and that he felt his life to be in danger. But while a gun was found at the scene, it was found here, seven metres away from the site of the shooting. At the heart of that controversy are two questions. Could Duggan have been holding a gun? And how did the gun get to the grass? We started by examining hundreds of publicly available documents, including witness statements, diagrams, and expert reports. We traveled to the scene of the killing and took photographs of every part of the site. According to the IPCC, sometime during that period, Duggan threw the gun with enough force to land seven meters away. If Duggan didn't throw the gun at that time, there are only two alternatives. Either Duggan threw the gun as he exited the minicab, or the gun was moved by police officers. In both cases, Duggan would not have been holding a gun when he was shot and would have posed no threat to the police. So if the work we just listened to, we are in the gallery, and I guess the question of aesthetics becomes inescapable, and Mafia, I was intrigued to see that in the book you actually treat aesthetics as one of the inputs into the investigative process rather than the output of communicating your findings. In terms of aesthetics, what we argue for in this book is a, is a relatively uh, straightforward definition of aesthetics, which has two parts. One is 
that aesthetics is to do with sensing. And what we do is to expand the terrain of what sensing is. So we say that everything in the world senses, whether it's a microphone, whether it's uh, a brick in the wall, whether it's uh, a piece of an area, a stretch of mud or a plant, all of these things are, are sensing. That is, they receive kinesthetic uh, effects from different kinds of entity that come in contact with them. They uh, change in relationship to the environments that they're in, but they only change according to their specificity. Uh, so a book, for instance, may be able to sense in conceptual terms what are the ideas that it sets up and how is it able to articulate a relationship to other ideas or other experiences. But it also may be uh, able to absorb water or to absorb other kinds of uh, substance. So a book uh, has these you know, at least two registers in which it operates. Uh, a brick may receive a bullet or it may receive, uh, you know, a, an insect alighting on its surface, one of which it will be able to sense because it will, the bullet will change its, uh, its structure. The insect landing on it will not, uh, will not be sensible. So there are limits to the way in which everything in the world uh, senses. It's not that we're, we're adopting a, uh, a completely panpsychist point of view where everything in the world is sentient and intelligent. What we're saying is that everything participates in the world and is pressing in on each other in order to uh, constitute our ecologies, the environments, the societies that we live in. And this sensing is also coupled with the second definition of aesthetics that we work with, that Aesthetics is also about sense-making, that is, reasoning, reflecting, using memory, uh, trying to understand the world, that is, making sense of the world. And also that sense-making has a second uh, characteristic, that is, we're able, um, in cultural terms and technical terms, to make new kinds of sensing apparatus, so to, to make devices, to make code, to make artistic works, uh, to make procedures, social arrangements, uh, to make a politics that is sensible uh, to novel kinds of things, that pays attention to the world in certain ways. And this three-part aspect of uh, this three dimensions of aesthetics is the kind of broader proposition in the book about what aesthetics contemporarily consists of. So on the one hand, it's ecological and it's post-human. It decenters the human and the reasoning human as the center of the world. And it also says that sense-making is productive, that we can, we can also invent. Uh, so it's, it's also an invitation for people to think, okay, what, how do we invent the world? How do we invent new forms of aesthetics? that are adequate to understanding the kind of problems that are faced today. Well, it shouldn't surprise me that you mentioned bricks in this context, given that we're talking about forensic architecture, but you're not, in fact, the first one of my guests to dwell on the potential of these objects. So I wonder if we could use this example to expand a little bit on the epistemic potential of a system in which we are now surrounded by sensing objects. So we've moved on from our quite limited um, set of senses of vision, taste, smell, touch, and so on, to a world in which we might actively want to 
invested to turning our environments into sensing, into aesthetics, objects. Yeah, I, th- I think one could say that, that, say, a brick or any other object in the world can be interpreted as, as a carrier of meaning, but meaning is also an act of interpretation. If we argue that knowledge is, is not present in bricks, they're not knowing subjects, but they also carry, uh, they carry affordances, you know, as, as James Gibson, the environmental uh, psychologist, proposes. So an affordance is a quality of an object that allows something to be done with it, whether it's an idea, whether it's a material substance, like a, a brute material substance, like a brick. A brick, for instance, is very, uh, very good for picking up with a hand. It offers the affordance of being picked up. And the size of bricks has emerged over time in order to uh, interact with the affordances of the human hand. Uh, you know, some architects uh, have, have tried to work with differently sized bricks, uh, and these have um, often caused injury to the bricklayers because they don't they don't work with the hand so well. Uh, so you could say there's a there's a kind of meaning imposed or meaning derived there because it involves a kind of a class violence on on bricklayers uh, and their their kind of ability to work with the materials when the material changes in a way that causes them injury. This you know this is one example in which uh, a wider framing of the question of how to understand the world comes into play. In a sense, so you you talk about uh, an epistemic question and how to how to rework the epistemic in this case in this in the situation where um, we have to recognise that the human isn't the only thing that is producing uh, experience or undergoing the world. So, in this case, we have to start looking at different kinds of actor, different kinds of entity that exist in the world. So, you know, often in some of the cases that we're, we're interested in, there might be, for instance, uh, plants that bear traces of certain chemicals or certain kinds of, the bear traces of certain kind of events. Uh, for instance, you know, AR mentioned uh, different kinds of sensors that are able to pick up um, certain kinds of receptivity of plants to sunlight depending on how they've been uh, depending on how they've been treated and so on oh you can look at some of the kind of historical um historical accounts of the highland clearances for instance where because of the um uh, the people who traditionally inhabited the highlands were removed in order to uh impose sheep as the the primary form of agriculture uh the plants that they ate changed and you know the deposition of droppings around settlements changed so the fertilization of the ground changes so you can read the ecological and uh social catastrophe that was the, the highlands clearances in the herbage that grows in these uh in these spaces and you know, this is something that aesthetically is something to pay attention to. I mean, for instance, the the poet J.H. Uh, Prynne writes exactly about this, um, uh, this this changing of plant growth uh, in his in his poetry around the sites of the the clearances, for instance. Uh, and so, this is something that we we see has a long 
uh, history and aesthetic work of different kinds. And the question then becomes, how do you pay attention to the ways in which different kinds of experience in the world and different kinds of undergoing the world, um, how, how do you pay attention to way that the ways in which these things are known? So certainly that means talking to, to botanists, to farmers, to, uh, to peasants working with agriculture in these kind of cases, but it also means finding uh, technological means by which these things can be understood. So looking for different kinds of senses. Uh, one of the sources of inspiration that we have is work by the sociologist and designer uh, Jennifer Gabriel, and the artist Susan Shupley, um, as well as work by artists such as Lawrence Abu Hamdan and others uh, who've all been looking at different ways to pay attention to the way the world uh, composes itself and how different kinds of materials in the world record, make sense of, or re-articulate and translate um, events that happen in the world. So this we see as a kind of a broader uh, current of work in, in contemporary art, but also in contemporary social practices of, of different kinds that recognize that the world is made up of more than, more than humans and of attempting to find ways of translating the experience of uh, multiple kinds of entity, multiple kinds of being into means that uh, we can have some kind of dialogue with or we can gain some kind of understanding of, even if we can never fully understand them. I want to go back for a moment to the received understanding of aesthetics, that is the Kantian tradition, which applies to aesthetics as a uh, form of judgment of representations. So in as much as you disavow in your definition and in the arguments in the book, much of what we have picked up from Kant, I wonder how you see investigative aesthetics in dialogue with the various theorizations of aesthetics in relationship to art and politics. Uh, I think what we, what we aim to do is to not engage in representation. Uh, but to engage in translation. So this, if we say that, and this is uh, following the work of Michel Serre, uh, the, the French philosopher who recently passed away, I think um, his work has been incredibly important uh, for us in thinking through these kind of questions, as, as well as others who've been influenced by his work, uh, such as uh, Bruno Latour and Isabel Stengers. Um, what we're looking at is the way in which every interaction between things uh, transforms both the things that are that are interacting, but also the things that pass between them. So there's when you know, you you say something to me, I'm understanding it from within my terms of reference. So I'm translating what you say into into my own internal representation. So when we talk about this kind of question of how aesthetics occurs, for sure it involves representations, uh, but it also, those representations are the result of translations. And those representations are in turn translated as they move from um, one form of mediation to another. Yeah. So for instance, the conversation we're having, if it was transcribed and turned into a text, it would probably look kind of like gobbledygook. 
there is a difference between spoken and written language. So even even within the same, well, roughly the same uh, material, there are differences according to convention. So to translate uh, one one medium into another, so re- a recorded speech into to written speech requires translation, and there is information lost in that translation. So from tone of voice, timbre, the interaction of speakers, uh, and so on. What we want to do is to take all of these these things into account, and we think that the aesthetic fields, which is your know, art in the broadest sense, has always been extremely good at recognizing uh, ex- the nuances of these translations. So what we say is, is, as well as making pictures of things, that is to represent them, we also say that to understand and to bring forward the question of translation uh, is, is really crucial because it allows the the work of, of aesthetic work on materials to, to come to the fore. So how, for instance, uh, translating a video into machine learning, a data that machine learning program can work on, involves a translation. And that translation has potential difficulties. It has potential consequences in terms of uh, the kinds of statements that can be made about it or the kind of learning that can be done. Um, so all of these uh, all of these processes, even if they're as ostensibly neutral as a satellite image or a computer program, involve transformations, involve translations, and we want to trace the way these translations are active in producing the world. Hey, I want to turn to you. Mafia a moment ago referred to uh, poetry and botany as sources of knowledge and source of information and investigations. But I want to ask you about the kind of um, technological and maybe also political changes that have enabled the development of what you um, term counter-forensics and counter-investigation. Okay, I guess, I guess the kind of book that we've written could only come about um, at this moment in time, at this moment in technological time and in this moment in political time, meaning the challenges that come from neo-fascist governments around the world that want to attack truth, if you like, in a, in a kind of in a very general way, um, by attacking the institutions that buttress truth and doing that in order to oppress, kill and rob. Um, you know, if this is if this sounds like a new, like the post-truth argument sounds like a new phenomena, I, I would say that everyone that worked in an anti-colonial struggle is very, very familiar of that because that's what colonialism is, is a kind of epistemological wrecking ball um, that um, distorts the facts that you see in front of your eyes. Um, so when you have such an attack... Uh, on the epistemological foundations of society, there is kind of two options. On the one hand, you say, oh, let's buttress, let's let's support the New York Times, pay for independent journalism, let's, let's give more resources to the FBI, let's support the police and the judiciary and expertise. Let's, if they say there is nothing like expertise, let's bring on the experts. And we say the opposite, let it fall. 
let it fall because there are problems with the way in which institutional knowledge is organized. Let's build something else. Let's take this moment, this incredible technological, epistemological, political moment, build something else out of it, something that is collaborative, something that is unexpected, something that combines the sensibilities of filmmakers and artists with those of scientists and lawyers and activists and always, you know, always organized around the leadership of the people at the forefront of struggle, uh, whose knowledge of conflict is a form of expertise, if you like, if you even want to use that term. It's definitely a, a form of knowledge, embodied knowledge, situated knowledge that is extremely useful to even understand what it is that you see. So I guess that in a sense, um, what we're talking about is really um, a way in which um, investigations which sounds like a very niche thing, but basically we're talking about understanding the world around us, you know, like kind of having an image of the real that is produced, that is made, that is contingent, that is imminent, uh, that is elastic, but still um, grasping and describing that image is always a collective process. And it needs to be grasped and grabbed, sorry, from the sort of the mouth of those um, in charge of, uh, you know, the kind of the, the, the priests of truth uh, that I mentioned earlier. Well, at this stage, I want to introduce another short clip from an investigation called Triple Chaser, which Forensic Architecture produced with the artist Laura Poitras. And I'm interested in this investigation for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is the very observable effect that the project had on the individuals and organizations that are mentioned in it. And again, I'll place links to relevant stories in the show notes. And the second reason that this is an investigation that brings together a few of the elements that we've been talking about, that is the aesthetic, the artistic, the machine-made, the human-made, um, into one package. So we'll listen to an extract from the work and the full video is available on the Forensic Architecture website. On November 25th, 2018, US agents fired tear gas at migrants on the Tijuana-San Diego border. The tear gas was manufactured by the Safariland Group, owned by Warren B. Canders, the vice chair of the Board of Trustees of the Whitney Museum of American Art, which commissioned this work. In response, forensic architecture is training a machine learning classifier to search for images of tear gas grenades manufactured by the Safariland Group. We took as our test case the triple chaser tear gas grenade manufactured by Defense Technology, a subsidiary of Safariland. We recreated all the permutations of triple chaser branding around the world. We set the model against bold patterned backgrounds to ensure that the classifier learns to identify the grenades. In 2016, Warren B. Canders gave $2.5 million to the Aspen Music Festival. Now that we've created a synthetic data set, we train the machine learning algorithm to recognize Safariland triple chaser tear gas grenades. Safariland safety guidance provides the following information to doctors. Severe allergic skin reaction, 
bronchial spasms, and anaphylactic shock are possible. Irritant to eyes. Irritant to skin and mucous membranes. Breathing difficulty. Disorientation. So in the back of this work, I want us to think a little bit about the kind of universe in which the machine is now involved in pretty much every aspect of both sensing and sense-making. So in the clip that we just heard from Triple Chaser, we arrived at a situation where the line between the sensing possibilities of the human and the machine are completely blurred. When we started, um, there were hand, there was always a handful of videos and visual materials around incidents, six, seven, eight, twelve, you know. As we kept on working, the amount of material and the length of material increased. So, you know, the difference, uh, we write in the book that the kind of the difference between the 2015 Black Lives Matter and Hong Kong protests, the famous umbrella protests then, and then the, those that happened in 2020 and 2019, in the case of Hong Kong, are, are incredibly, you know, they're very similar political events, but they're very different media events. Um, when we were working on the, the, the brutality and repression of the Black Lives Matter protest, we came across uh, amount of live stream material that was kind of impossible to process uh, by our open source human researchers. We, they needed help. They needed help with the first step. They needed to, uh, we needed to start writing scripts and start writing, and then finally machine learning um, classifiers to help us identify where within, you know, those 100 four hours long videos, you see a particular launcher of tear gas or a particular type of tear gas grenade. And then we needed to, um, to train the machine how to see and how to identify those. And it's like training, a, it's a little bit, I mean, Matt would tell you differently, I'm sure. It's a little bit like like teaching a child uh, how to identify an object. You show it many times, you show it from different perspectives. Um, you know, we realize that, you know, after several thousand um, iteration when you show uh, the, the the classifier you say that's a tear gas grenade that's a tear gas grenade that's not a tear gas this is a tear gas grenade this this is also even when it's rusted it's still a tear gas grenade and even if it's squashed it's still a tear gas grenade right so you go through that sort of all this permutation and iteration then you send it out on the wild and it comes start bringing you plumbing equipment okay so you go again and then we realize that the best way to train the algorithm for us uh, is to engage in, in you know, something that exists within, um, within sort of machine learning communities. It's, uh, it's called synthetic data sets. So we use our ability to fast modeling object uh, and to produce permutations in objects. So, you know, for our modeler, it takes a few days to produce, you know, 10,000 iteration of a single tear gas grenade in, you know, in Unreal or in any other gaming engine. Um, you trick the machine to say that's a real one and you say that's what it is and then you know it kind of improves its search it, its capacity to learn faster 
especially when uh, we're looking for banned munitions, like chemical munitions, there are not enough examples of them on, online as images. So you need to actually simulate them and, and do that. But what it also allows you, the synthetic data sets, is to introspect the algorithm itself. Because we do not fully know the machine learning processes that happen computationally within that. We know what we put in and what we get out. There's a kind of a black box that is in there. And we realize that it's very important because that black box, for us, it does something great. And, you know, for human rights or for, you know, some resistance, uh, etc. But for other people, it would do something horrible. So we need to expose also the potential violations that happen within this black box. Um, and by creating iterative changes to the input and recording precisely the output of that classifier, we can shed a little bit of light into that process. And that is something that we call introspection. And it is central to the book and it's central to the work of FFA. If we use a tool and a technology, we'd use it to investigate human rights out there in the field, but will also in investigate its own potential bias, the own inherent violence that perhaps is um, within it, their own hierarchies that are within it. And so we've done in relation to uh, satellite images and showing why they're pixelated in places more than others. And so we've done in terms of like both using machine learning to uh, speed up our human right process and also to shed some light on the algorithm itself. And we found like strange things that uh, help us understand why why the, the computational process work the way uh, it does. Matt? Well, I think one way into it is to understand that computers are you know, inherently cultural and they're, everything that goes into uh, a contemporary computer and the historical accrual of what computing is as a field has cultural roots, that is, uh, roots in terms of the way the world is understood, the way the world is is modelled, what counts as uh, something that can be said or not said. And some of those are to do with the, the basic structures in mathematics or in logic. Uh, some of them are to do with the economies uh, of electronics and the, the, the political economy of intellectual property. Others are to do with the conventions of different cultures and the way in which different cultures are able to encode certain norms into software, for instance. And what we aim to do in the book is to, to understand technology as something that is inherently cultural and political because everything that is able to speak, everything that is able to sense has uh, an engagement with the world as m an intersection of multiple flows of power, uh, as well as multiple flows of, of sensing, experience, uh, reflection, and articulation of, of sense-making. And computing is, is no different in, in some senses because of this. Where computing becomes especially important for 
the present is because much of social life, much of interaction, much of warfare, uh, much of scientific knowledge, much of people's experience has moved on to digital platforms, computer-mediated experiences of multiple different kinds. And this is where, this is where politics takes place in many, in many cases. So we need to understand this terrain. Uh, we need to understand it as uh, being complexly articulated as cultural, but also as political, and as a space that has its own particular qualities. And some of those qualities are, are quite mundane to the to the digital uh, you know the question of what what the digital is you know something is either on or off uh, for instance um, we also need to learn about the specificity of particular algorithms and texturing our experience of the the reality of computing uh, when we think about how knowledge of the ep- the current epidemic emerges for instance we think about the uh, the experience of the epidemic is a bodily process, but it's also one that's very much caught up in uh, technical systems of tracking and tracing, of models of epidemics and of epidemiology, of understanding the virus as uh, something that can be technically known, but also its its passage between people uh, can be can be articulated through tracking it in different ways refining the models, projecting them forward, projecting them backwards of um, the interaction of um, you know, very old mathematical models of probability, such as Bayes' theorem, into uh, our experience of the world in terms of how we calculate what is probable based on what we already know and how when we go through the next phase of gathering data or the next phase of experience, we then change our, our model uh, and what we what we can expect in the future. And these this kind of experience of something that is happening globally, that's happening differentially according to different apportionings of wealth and importance across the world, which are highly gendered, highly racialized and highly colonial, um, are also things that are experienced through scientific knowledge, through everyday experience, and through uh, the way in which economies apportion value. These are all things that we know through different degrees of artificiality. Uh, that is, you know, dashboards that uh, map the map the spread of the virus, tests that allow us to know whether we've, with some degree of probability, got the virus or not, or got the right number of antibodies uh, and this knowing or experiencing the the epidemic is something that is um, mixes global scales of knowledge or global scales of experiences with very intimate ones of being a recipient of the virus or of being the recipient of the vaccine uh, or of not receiving the vaccine of not being deemed worthy of having it and of undergoing illness according to you know what 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 has happened in our life and so on so this mixture of scales of the the kind of global phenomena and of large scale computational processes that analyze uh, the epidemic as it as it unfolds and of being 
this something that hooked into people's intimate uh, intimate experiences of life. That's something we call uh, this kind of experience is something we call hyperesthetic. So it's this massive magnification of uh, the individual experience in relationship to a wider uh, ecology of sensing and undergoing. But the pandemic is an example of another set of conditions that you describe in a book, um, which you term hyperesthesia. So if hyperesthetics is a state of enhanced sensing, enhanced witnessing, hyperesthesia is a state of sensory overload. I think one of the examples that you give is, for instance, um, the state of torture, something like waterboarding involves sensory overload. But you also talk about information overload as something that is potentially a form of combat or warfare. So how do we how do we guard against becoming involved in that kind of sensory over- overload? Yeah, I think I mean the way we the way we talk about hyperesthesia is that it's it's part of a set of strategies for dealing with sensing as the terrain of politics. So if we think we see politics as being one of the key grounds for understanding contemporary aesthetics and aesthetics as the the way in which politics is made in the present. So if we think of uh, the political understanding that we have of the world through, for instance, social media, where everything is a matter of urgency or is a, is a, is a matter of immediate affect and taking up of affect, um, that something spreads virally as it moves from one person's consciousness to another without even necessarily becoming fully conscious. The question of, of the politics of aesthetics uh, becomes really crucial. So one of the strategies we believe that's emerging in the in the present as um, as a way in which politics unfolds in aesthetic terrain is aesthetic overload. And obviously, there's been a um, since the since the middle of the 20th century, there's been a, a discourse on information overload as uh, as a problem for humans, uh, something that emerges particularly in the, uh, the cybernetics attempts to address as a as a discourse and to try and make vast amounts of information tractable and understandable. Uh, so this is a this is a model of the world that's that's already uh, strongly linked to the history of technology. It's one of the kind of genealogies of of computing is an attempt to deal with information overload and to make uh, information navigable, understandable, uh, and so on. What we what we argue in 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 the book is that there's a condition in which information now. Is, is treated by different systems, whether they're political or mediatic systems, not as something which attempts to make rational sense, but that attempts to occupy conceptual space or attempts to occupy uh, what Yves Citon calls uh, the economy of attention, the, the way in which cognitive load is placed upon people, uh, people's brains, almost like a denial of service attack that hackers would 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 do on a website or a server. Denial of service attack is, is carried out on people's cognitive capacity as uh, a key strategy in, uh, in, a co- in, in politics at the moment. So politics of sensing uh, therefore extends also to a kind of politics of cognition. 
what is uh, what is drawn to people's attention, how people's cognitive capacity is saturated with um, different kinds of uh, sensory undergoing. Well, we've covered an incredible amount of ground here so far, but before we wrap up, I want to ask you both for yet another practical solution to some of the problems we've identified. And it's something that has been called to the work of forensic architecture and agencies and its ilk, like Bellingcat, which is the fact that the expertise deployed is distributed, that there is a sense of the commons. And you do propose in the book the idea of an investigative commons. So I'd like to ask you both to speak about how you see expertises and investigative sensory agents coming together. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that it's not really about um, saying that form of expertise are not important. On the contrary, it's about how to build another diagram of relation between that, that does not put the expert as in a kind of outside position looking down, but is part of an imminent field uh, of making and of becoming. So that, you know, the, the expert and the person that experienced violence and, and remembers or forgets or needs, you know, to work on sometimes with us on recollection, um, the, the lawyers, the artists, the filmmakers, the archaeologists, the car mechanics, if there's a car, uh, the biomechanic experts, are all part of a kind of a very extensive diagram uh, of truth production and that, that produces two things. One, it produces a kind of an account that we hope is approximating uh, best what has happened. And second, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's producing a community, community of practice. Um, and, you know, those communities can disperse, obviously, but something is left and, and something can be returned to uh, when needed, uh, not only in, in kind of, you know, charting out the horrors of the world. So, you know, it's not really, it, there's no argument again in, in, our, in our work against the wonderful intelligent expertise of computer coders and, and biomechanic engineers. It's just like leveling them and placing them in dialogue with things that they may have not, like curators, filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in, in the book we make the argument there are different kinds of different kinds of commons. And some arise through, uh, through kind of nonlinear chaotic processes, uh, such as language, for instance. We see, we see language as a kind of uh, a typical kind of commons that is a resource that everyone needs in order to communicate with each other, uh, but that nobody owns. And there is also a politics of uh, of languages, and which which kinds of languages are able to address uh, what kinds of knowledge or constitute different kinds of knowledge, and the way in which languages in turn are driven by or steered by or contaminated by um, different kinds of political figuration or different kinds of political uh, force. So not only what they make possible to, to see, talk about, uh, speak about, what they, what they make 
possible to say. Co- languages are also constituted by uh, the reworking by different kinds of political force. And this, so language, language is a very unstable uh, commons, but it's a commons nonetheless in that we all contribute, for instance, in this case, to the, the production of English. Other kinds of commons can be uh, very precise, like free software uh, or open source software, which produces a technical commons that is very uh, precisely defined in legal terms. That is, uh, under the GNU public license or some of the open source licenses, has certain kinds of rights and obligations built into it. Uh, so we see this as a as a designed commons that is uh, very particular to you know computational social spaces, and it's something that arises out of the particular affordances of uh, of, of digital social spaces, but also the the reflections of engineers on and and programmers and, and others on their way of working and what their what their kind of economic and technical and political needs are. So the opportunities that arise from the creation of this kind of commons are not quite the same as what what happens in an investigative commons, but they're related in the sense that they're people who have a common interest and they agree to work collectively uh, on a particular set of projects on a particular uh, within a particular frame of reference in order to get something done. Uh, so it's a very pragmatic kind of commons in that um, it makes a particular kind of work easier and better. Uh, for investigation, it's necessary to work in a collective way in order to make sure that the investigation works well, to bring together different kinds of knowledge, different kind of experience and different kind of uh, different kinds of evidence together and to triangulate them. So not only is it a commons of different kinds of expertise, it's also each expertise and different, different kind of experience brings together different kinds of evidence. It speaks its own idiom. It speaks its own vernacular. And those vernaculars are able then to provide tests for the others. If a certain kind of documentation is able to, uh, so it's a video documentation, is able to suggest that certain kind of entities, say tanks, were in a, a particular space at a particular time. We also need other kinds of evidence that may come from different kinds of actor, different kinds of sensor uh, to cross-reference that, you know, to test to test that. So it's in a way um, a kind of classic question of what are the mechanisms of verifiability uh, which are often used to exclude certain kinds of evidence, we can also use them to bring uh, different kinds of evidence together, of bringing different kinds of capacity to make a statement, to uh, offer certain kinds of evidence, and to say, okay, th- these, when brought together, are able to make certain kinds of claim with certain kinds of uh, restrictions as to the, li- the reliability of any of these uh, of these particular individual uh, forms of witness, forms of evidence, and so on. Well, Ayal Matthew, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this work with us. Before I let you both go, I want to ask you in turn about your plans and 
where you see this work going in the future? Currently, I'm working on a project on the way in which language and computing are articulated in the present. So thinking specifically about uh, the large-scale machines that work on the work on our experience of language, uh, whether it's the kind of autocorrect or whether it's search engines, how computation and language set up the conditions uh, in which we, we communicate, in which we speak in the present. And Eyal, what's the future of forensic architecture? You know, I sometimes I cannot really say the projects that we're working on and, and there's some sensitive stuff that we do now. But uh, organizationally, we, we're trying to grow as a field rather than as, a, as an office, meaning uh, we try to train other people to use our techniques. We, 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 we started to work more collaboratively and in Berlin uh, together with Bellingcat, Laura Poitras and an absolutely brilliant um, legal right group called ECCHR that are very well known for their kind of privacy advocacy and for representing Assange and Snowden in, um, in Germany. Um, we, you know, we collaborate with them because they, they bring in kind of like legal heft and kind of fist maybe into uh, that sort of weaponizes the findings that we that we are able to do. Uh, we also opened um, a collaborative office in Ramallah now. Um, we have uh, we're supporting um, former FA uh, members to open offices. So one of them is Index in France, another one is in in Sao Paulo. So we we're trying really to kind of like a little bit dematerialize the edge of the uh, of the practice and kind of like have uh, push agency towards the, the frontier. My thanks go to Matthew Fuller and Ayal Wiseman, whose book Investigative Aesthetics, Conflicts and Comments in the Politics of Truth is published by Verso. I'm Pierre Delancey, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.